Judges chapter 3, verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goat, and he also delivered Israel. Dylan, don't get used to the fact that you're going to get one verse to read, okay? It is good to be together once again this Lord's Day. And we are going to be studying from the book of Judges. I hope that you have your Bibles open. We're going to be studying from Judges chapter 3 this evening. And we'll be looking at the example of Shamgar here in just a moment. If you don't know who Shamgar is, then I think by the end of the evening you will know who he is. Uh, but certainly good to be together once again this Lord's Day. I invite you to be opening your Bibles and studying along with us. Last week we began what's going to be a series from the book of Judges. And we looked at how there were compromises that Israel made at the outset of the book of Judges that opens the book that you see that they began well, but then they quickly turned away from serving the Lord. And a generation rose up that did not know God. And so the children of Israel, they turned away from Yahweh. They began to serve other gods and the idols of the other nations around them. And because of that, in Judges chapter 2, we learn that in verse 11 it says, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Israel is in the promised land. And as we have studied in our adult class, and I know as many of our children are studying right now, in the book of Genesis and Exodus, they're learning about the expectation that the children of Israel would go into the promised land and that they would be able to dwell in this land flowing with milk and honey, that they would receive all of God's blessings, but they have come to the land that God has given them. After all of the success that Joshua led them in, now they are there and they have turned away from God. They have forsaken the Lord. And because of that, God's hand was against them. God was very displeased with them because they have turned to worshiping the idols that Moses had warned them to not allow, to, to get rid of all the people in the land. But we saw in Judges chapter 1, they allowed many of the Canaanites to continue to live in the land. And they were an influence on Israel and turning them away from God. And so in Judges chapter 3, the children of Israel, they actually realize that they have messed up. In chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, 
all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites and the uh, Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were te for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which He had commanded their fathers through Moses. So God was using these nations to test Israel's allegiance, if they would follow God or not. In verse 7 it says, The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so that He sold them into the hands of the uh, Kushan... Uh, this is going to be one of those names here. Dylan, be glad I didn't give you this one. Rishtamath, king of Mesopotamia, and the sons of Israel served that king eight years. And it says, When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel when he went out to war. The Lord gave that king of Mesopotamia into his hand so that he prevailed over him. And the land had rest forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Othniel, the nephew of Caleb, someone with an impeccable degree, a pedigree of faithfulness and devotion to God, is the first judge, and he delivers Israel from the hands of the enemies. That Israel, they began to realize that they have sinned. And so they cry out to God for deliverance. And God blesses them and gives them a deliverer. Othniel is the first judge of Israel. But what happens is this cycle that begins throughout the book of Judges. Israel again turns to idols. And the Moabites rule over Israel. And so they would later cry out to the Lord and ask for God to send a judge, a deliverer, someone to save them. And so God sends Ehud, the second judge of Israel. And Ehud was, what is interesting about him is that he was a left-handed person. We find out that he is left-handed, likely due to some <clears throat> deformity in his right hand. But he led Israel in battle against the Moabites and he freed Israel. And it's in the middle of these two judges that we see this cycle begin where there is a, an enemy that comes against the people of God. They, because of their idolatry, they cry out to God for salvation. God looks kindly upon them and He sends a judge, someone to deliver them, someone to save them. Israel repents. They try to be faithful and they enjoy the freedom that the judge provides for them. And then the cycle begins all over again. And it's following these two judges that we learn about Shamgar. After we learn about Othniel and Ehud, it says, And after him came Shamgar the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. If you turn over to chapter 5, of the book of Judges. In chapter 5, you have the song of Deborah and Barak. And in verse 6, 
We have a passing reference to Shamgar. It says, In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and travelers went by roundabout ways. Congratulations, you have read the only verses in the Bible tonight that reference Shamgar. Shamgar, though, I would submit to you, is a mystery in many ways. He is kind of a mystery man. He just kind of pops up on the scene and he quickly vanishes. He's not given much of a narrative like Othniel and Ehud. He certainly doesn't have the formal uh, pedigree that Othniel does, being a descendant or or a relation to Caleb, a great hero of faith in Israel. He gets one verse of prose and one verse of poetry, and that's it. That's all that the Bible records about Shamgar. And even the name Shamgar may not even be a Hebrew name. It is likely a Canaanite name, indicating that Shamgar had an ethnically mixed ancestry. But make no mistake about it. As the Scripture records, he also saved Israel. He's not to be overlooked. And in fact, I think there is something that we can learn about Shamgar. Especially as you consider his zeal. That Shamgar struck down 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And that's interesting here. As you read the narrative, as the narratives of Othniel and Ehud, we learn about them. And what you see is that there is this force, these nations, these tribes that have enslaved Israel. They are uh, coming against Israel. And what you see is that Othniel and Ehud are sort of a reaction. That the children of Israel, they cry out to God and they ask for God to send a deliverer. But Israel had to endure a few years of persecution, of being enslaved to these other tribes and these other nations. But with Shamgar, we don't read about Israel being enslaved for any any amount of time. And that's an interesting contrast that you have Othniel and Ehud, they are reactionary, that they follow on the heels of enslavement. But I think perhaps as we see that Shamgar just quickly comes on the scene and then he quickly disappears, that might be indicating something to us that he is a very proactive leader among God's people. That he is trying to fight back before the Moabites actually gain a foothold in Israel, the Philistines rather. And so, as with Shamgar, things transpire in this different order. Rather than being reactionary, Shamgar goes on the offensive. Before the Philistines gained that strong foothold in the land of Israel to oppress uh, oppress them for many years, Shamgar recognizes the foreign invasion and he single-handedly fights them back. Shamgar's zeal and passion are exemplary. Because there is something that we have to recognize when it comes to fighting the forces of Satan. That we don't have time to be reactionary. 
We have to go on the offensive. We have to be fighting proactively. In many ways, Shamgar is like Phineas. You remember in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 25, when the children of Israel have come to the wilderness of Peor, and there the children of Israel had joined themselves with the daughters of Moab in committing sexual immorality with them. And Phineas, he takes charge in the matter. In Numbers chapter 25 and in verse 7, it says, When Phineas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. You continue on in verse 11. It says, Phineas, this is God speaking about Phineas. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Here is Phineas, and he sees that there is a great sin and that there is going to be ramifications, there's going to be a plague that God sends on the children of Israel. And Phineas says, oh no, we're not going to have that go on. Well, I'm going to deal with this head on. And so he takes a spear in his hand and he kills the man and the woman. And God acknowledges him in his zeal and his jealousy that he is someone who is defending what holiness ought to look like among the people of God. And I would suggest to you that we need men and women that are like that in the Lord's church. We need people to recognize what is right and they need to zealously defend what is right. They need to see something that is, when they see something that is wrong, they need to go and correct that immediately. There's a sense of urgency that Shamgar and Phineas had. Interestingly, I think in the book of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, as the Apostle Paul is describing his former life, and whatever you might say about Paul as a persecutor of the church, that even though he was wrong in that, he was acting with great zeal because he was convicted that this was an error and he was wrong about that. But he at least acknowledged that there is something to be said about zeal and doing something. In Philippians chapter 3, whenever Paul was talking about himself, it says in verse 6, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless as he is describing himself and his former actions. And because of his zeal, he became a persecutor of the church. What you see that zeal does, it is supposed to prompt you to action. Whenever there are people who have great zeal, men like Shamgar or Phineas or Paul, then we need to be active. We need to be fighting and engaging in the war that is before us. Because we are in a war. We are in a battle. And I hope that doesn't come as a surprise to any of us tonight. But you and I are in a battle right now. Paul makes it very clear in the book of Ephesians in the 6th chapter. In Ephesians chapter 6, 
A passage I'm sure we are familiar with in Ephesians chapter 6 and in verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan is our enemy, and we are engaged in a battle right now, today, Tomorrow, if we continue to live and for another week, for another month, for another year, however long we might be living on this earth, we are engaged in a battle. Because Satan wants you. And we have to fight. We have to be ready to be men and women who look like Shamgar. We have to be people who are willing to do whatever it takes to fight and to destroy the enemy, to serve the Lord faithfully. Paul would write to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. He would appeal to him, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. To take hold of eternal life. Fight the good fight of faith. That idea of taking hold. Take possession of it. That you have it. You just have to continue to fight for it. Because we haven't received it in its totality. We have a promise of receiving it. But we have to fight for it. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 3, Paul says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Now we cannot afford to be distracted by the sins and the enticements and the lusts that are out there that Satan wants to use to destroy us. We have to always be engaged. We have to focus on God's Word. We have to focus on what is right, on what is pure, what is good, and what is holy. Because the devil wants us to be distracted. He wants us to take our eye off the prize just for a moment. He wants us to be enticed by sin, by lust, that will promise some kind of happiness, some kind of escape. That's what he wants. That's what Satan is after. Because remember, he's in a fight for your soul. We can't be naive. We have to be ready to fight. And once this life is over, when we die, We have the promise of taking hold of that eternal life in its totality. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, notice what Paul says I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He's speaking about the past tense, but then he says in verse 8 In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. That when we die in faithful service to the Lord, as an obedient soldier, as someone who is a submissive child of God, there is the promise of great reward. That crown of life. The question is, where is your zeal? Are you engaged in the fight? Because if you're not, or if you're just kind of haphazardly in the fight, if you're not zealous and engaged and being proactive, and if you're only reacting, then that might indicate how well you're doing in the fight. You have to ask yourself, are you being someone like Shamgar who went and struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goat? Someone who is zealously trying to serve and worship the true God of heaven, even whenever, as we see that Shamgar, there's no indication that he fought with anyone else. Even if it means that you have to fight alone, are you willing to fight? Because it's your soul that is on the line. But we also see that there is some intrigue about Shamgar's weapon. If you want to call it a weapon, he used an ox goad. Just an ordinary farm tool, but a very odd instrument of war. Just a long stick with a pointy end at the end of it. (laughs) And you find that interesting because throughout Israel's history, Many times, these foreign invaders that would come in, they would not allow Israel to forge their own weapons. We learned that in 1 Samuel chapter 13. That early on in the kingdom of Israel, when Saul was king, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, when the Philistines are uh, becoming a menace again against Israel, In 1 Samuel chapter 13 and in verse 19, it says, Now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to fix the hoe. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. That Israel, they were forced to just use farm equipment to go out and engage in battle. Many times. But I believe this ordinary tool that Shamgar used reinforces the point that it really wasn't in Shamgar. It really wasn't in the weapon. The power that was behind it was the Lord. 
It was God who was with Shamgar. Earlier in Judges chapter 3, with the very first judge that we learn in verse 9, Othniel, it says, When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. In verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. That it was the Lord who was with Shamgar that blessed him and allowed him to be effective in defeating the enemy. And just this ordinary piece of farming equipment shows us that the real power is found in the Lord. And the same, I believe, is true for us in our spiritual warfare against Satan. In the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, the passage that where Paul is writing about putting on the whole armor of God, we, we didn't read all of the pieces of armor that we're told about. But in verse 17, it says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is God's Word. That is our weapon. And God's Word is contrary to a lot of things. It's contrary to a lot of the wisdom that we like to think of as wise. In the book of 1 Corinthians, in the first two chapters, really beginning at verse 18 of chapter 1, if you'll notice there how Paul describes the Gospel itself as he's talking to these Corinthians, these Romans, these Greeks, and the Greek philosophy of the day, and how they would engage in just long speeches and long talks and, you know, uh, talking about philosophy and religion and politics and all these different things that they would just sit and debate, putting all these different thoughts out there. That was what was considered wisdom in Paul's day. And Paul says in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For someone who does not believe in God, for someone who does not have any interest in spiritual things, for someone who is, uh, is very antagonistic to the notion that you would believe in God, they would think of you as gullible, they would think of you as someone who is, just believes in ancient myths, they would think of you as a fool. And Paul says that's the way of the world. That's how the world thinks. They think of the gospel as foolish. Talk about a crucified Savior. That's silly. That's nonsense. Because the gospel and God's word, it's contrary to earthly wisdom. But the Bible, the Word of God, we learn about in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4. The passage that we referenced on Wednesday night in our invitation. In Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 12, the Word of God, 
The Hebrew writer says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And going on in verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are laid, are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That the Word of God is able to judge us, is able to pierce us and pierce the very thoughts that we might have, the intents that we might have. You know, we, we might get into a discussion and you say, you might interpret some of my words one way and I might say, well, that's not my intention. I did not intend to convey that message. You might, and, and I might have misspoken. But God's Word is able to judge even your intentions. While I might miscommunicate and while you might misinterpret, there is no miscommunication and no misinterpretation with God because He is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart, your innermost being. And God's Word, it convicts us, it judges us, it can cause us to stumble. Peter talks about that. And we see that God's Word, it may not impress some people, but there is nothing to be ashamed by it. God's Word is able to do so much for our good that it equips us with, for everything that we need to serve God. And the Scriptures, Paul makes very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and in verse 18, as he's writing to Timothy, he says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Paul says, you need to rely upon God's Word. The prophecies that were made, they prepare you to fight the good fight. They're going on in verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 13, Paul says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The very words of the message of God's Gospel. Those are the words of salvation. Those are the words of God that give life and freedom. The Scriptures are beneficial for us as we engage in battle. Our weapon, it may not look like much. Many people may laugh and scoff and mock at God's Word and the Gospel. But you have heroes of faith like David who defeated Goliath with a slingshot and some stones. You have men like Shamgar who delivered people of Israel with an ox goad. God is very powerful. 
And with Him and His Word on our side, we are equipped for any battle that we might engage in. We need to be willing to fight. We need to be ready to serve and not scoff at God's Word as being what is helpful in aiding us in our spiritual warfare. And then finally this evening, I want you to think about Shamgar. That he delivered Israel. As the author of Judges says, and he also saved Israel. His actions allowed him to save God's people. And we learn about Shamgar that God used this man. And I believe first he realized something about himself. That he himself needed deliverance. In Judges chapter 3 and verse 31, in that one verse about Shamgar, we learn that he is called Shamgar the son of Anath. And there's a few different ideas about what that might be referring to. But one that I think is most interesting is the fact that Anath was the name of a Canaanite goddess, an idol. And you think about the fact that, as we mentioned at the beginning of our lesson, that Shamgar was certainly a non-traditional Israelite name. wasn't a Hebrew name. Probably implying that he was someone who had an Israelite mother or father and a Canaanite parent as well. So there is a really good chance that Shamgar, since he was the son of Anah, was raised up as an idolater. Of course, that's some, some speculation. But there is a pretty decent chance that he was someone who grew up as an idolater. And if that is true, then you think about his actions here. That when all of Israel who should have known God, they refused to serve God. But here is Shamgar, someone who is an idolater, who turns away and refuses his idolatry to serve God. He might have been someone who was raised as a pagan, but he has come to abandon those pagan idolaters and the idolatrous ways to conform himself to the true worship of Yahweh. Shamgar had to overcome idolatry. He had to refuse to follow in the footsteps of his parents. And he had to repent of his own sins first before he could do anything to help the people of God. Shamgar himself needed his own personal deliverance and salvation. And because of that, 
Because of that, he was able to become an instrument for God's salvation. He was able to become an instrument that God was able to use for the people of Israel. Much like someone else in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, in Acts chapter 9, when the Lord appears to Ananias and tells him about this guy named Saul of Tarsus, you need to go meet him. In Acts chapter 9 and in verse 13, in Acts chapter 9 and in verse 13, it says, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. God was able to use someone like Saul of Tarsus who had been a persecutor, a murderer, someone who had thrown people into jail unjustly. God was planning to use someone like Shamgar, like Saul. God uses people who we might think are the unlikeliest of heroes. And if He's able to use people like that, what can He do with you and me? Shamgar became an instrument for God's grace and God's salvation. You think about Israel at this point in time. They have turned against God Time and time again. This is the third judge. <laughs> you might be thinking three strikes and they're out. But time and time again, God sends a deliverer, a savior, a judge. Israel did not deserve salvation. It is by God's grace that He did that. That He brought a deliverer to save Israel. Shamgar becomes an instrument of God's grace just how Paul did. And God continued to show His faithfulness, His ever-abiding love to His people despite their disobedience. And what you have in the book of Judges is sort of this digression. As we looked at last week, it began with compromise, which then led to further unfaithfulness. You might describe it in another way, where they were spiritually apathetic and that led to apostasy and that would later lead to anarchy. And trust me, that's absolutely the pattern that takes place in the book of Judges as we will study and as we will learn. They just did whatever they wanted to. It's a spiraling effect that leads downward. 
sin, slavery, deliverer, salvation. That's the repeated process in the book of Judges. And what is a sad reality is that the picture of the children of Israel in the promised land looks a lot like our own lives, doesn't it? That we too have sinned. We too have been enslaved in the bondage of sin and we need a deliverer. We need God's salvation. And thankfully, if you will, turn with me to the book of Hebrews for one final passage for us to consider tonight. In Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 9, as the Hebrew writer would say about Jesus, but we do see Him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim Your name to My brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing Your praise. And again, I will put My trust in Him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given Me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Are you detecting the language there of the book of Judges? Slavery, sin, and what God did through Jesus. He corrected the course. He gave us a Savior. You continue on in that text in verse 17. Therefore He had to be made like His brethren in all things so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. There is a great need for us to study the book of Judges. Because the book of Judges can be a description of our relationship with God. For we are engaged in sin. And we're fighting back. We're trying to serve God, but we have compromised or we become apathetic. We turn to unfaithfulness and disobedience. And what it certainly reinforces in our mind is that we need a Savior. And that Jesus Christ came to this earth to set us free. He came to release us from the bondage of sin. 
We may not have a foreign nation enslaving us, but the devil is a hard taskmaster. When we are enslaved to sin, we need a Savior. Jesus, unlike Shamgar, was a perfect deliverer. He knew no sin. He was perfect. And He used what might be a peculiar kind of instrument to bring salvation. He went to a cross. He died. He shed His blood for you and for me. Of course, that may not sound like a great hero. It may not sound like someone who brought a lot of good. Someone who died. But that was God's plan. And while we may think in terms of human reasoning and human logic, that may not appeal to us. Remember what Paul said, that the foolishness of the cross, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, it is the power of God. God turned that cross, that instrument of death, into an instrument of grace and salvation and hope. An ox goad may not have been much, but it certainly was what brought deliverance and salvation for the children of Israel. And for us, that cross may not look much more than anything that would, other than brutal, brutal and death and hopelessness. But God was able to use it to bring salvation to the world. Throughout the book of Judges, we're going to see pictures that would probably remind us of God's redemption and salvation through Jesus Christ. Because the Judges are foreshadowing what God was going to accomplish through Jesus. The judges are deliverers. They're saviors. That's a little s, savior. But Jesus is the Savior who came to not free us from earthly enslavement. Jesus came to save us from the bondage of sin and of eternal death and separation from God. Tonight, you can be freed from the bondage of sin and death if you will come in obedience to the Gospel of Jesus Christ and be united with Jesus in His death, His burial, and His resurrection, coming to the waters of baptism to bury the old man of sin and to be raised to walk in newness of life, having your sins washed away to become a child of God to enjoy the redemption and the forgiveness that God graciously gives. That's the message of the Gospel. That's a message of hope and salvation. Tonight, if you need to become a Christian, we would encourage you to do that. Respond tonight to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But maybe it is that you have become a child of God, but you've not been living faithfully. You've been someone who has compromised their faith. You've become disobedient to God. You've become unfaithful. You've fallen away. You need to be restored and you need to be entering in again to that war that we are engaged in. You need to fight in that spiritual battle. We would encourage you tonight and delay no longer. Come back to the Lord. If we can help you in some way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?